Hey, you guys, it's another episode of Rob Observations. I am Rob Liefeld. I am guiding you down this path of comic book history, experience from my fan eye view as I consumed and uh, 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 just, just, just lived comic books. They were such and remain a huge part of my life, of my existence. I cannot remember a time when I did not have my head in a comic book. I can remember a time uh, when my mom would repeatedly slap me on the top of my head and say, get your head out of a comic book, because um, little Robbie Liefeld was totally consumed with comic books. Again, I say consumed all the time because I don't necessarily collect them. Um, if you saw the collection of uh, my, my comics and the condition of them, you would see I am not like a diehard collector, but I have many, many comics, and I read through my comics. I, I pour over them. I, I, I dig through comics from 30, 40 years ago, and, and I get magic memories, as I am certain so do so many of you today. The journey takes us to 1986, 34 years ago, a magic year for DC Comics. DC Comics had grabbed the mic away from Marvel. They had uh, taken the platform. They were now the dominant voice for about two years, maybe a little longer. You can't keep Marvel... Uh, at bay that long because Marvel is so powerful. They are so influential. They had so many of the top creators. But what was happening in 1986 and what we are going to cover today is kind of the final piece of the exodus of talent that left Marvel Comics and arrived on DC shores to radically transform the DC viewpoint, the DC comic book label, the reception of DC Comics um, by the by fandom. And if you don't think that those prominent Marvel creators were crossing over and bringing huge audiences to their DC efforts, um, you're kidding yourself. It, it, it completely transformed how DC was viewed. In the middle of 1986, I am, at a, I am working at a comic book store. We've covered this before. It was late 86, early 87 when I am uh, clerking at a comic book store. Uh, comic book stores are mostly not busy on Mondays and Tuesdays and, and sometimes Sundays, especially back in the day. So it was a great time for me to hone my skills. Very few customers were coming through other than on Wednesday and Friday back then. And uh, I was able to draw and, and kind of do my samples and get ready for this career in comics that I was hoping that I would have. But I got to see things from the clerk point of view at this time, as well as a fan point of view, and it is informing my entire career. It's fascinating. I'm so appreciative that I was able to get that job for that period of time. It was in Tustin, California. The comic store is now Tustin Tunes and Toys. Great people over there. Just uh, that was a very interesting period of my life. 1986 DC Comics changes everything. It had started in 1980 when George Perez, who we have covered, was a major, major Marvel talent. Avengers, Fantastic Four, all the flagship titles. Uh, George had done a huge X-Men job that riveted everybody. He, overnight, just out of nowhere, it's announced he's going to DC Comics. With Marv Wolfman, who had long written for Marvel Comics, Fantasy Four, Spider-Man, again, the flagship stuff, Nova. He was crossing over with George, and they transformed Teen Titans, new Teen Titans. You got Starfire, Cyborg, Changeling, Raven, a saga that would transform the sales outlook for DC, make them super competitive with the X-Men, which was the biggest book at the time. And 
George and Marv largely had the real estate of DC to themselves for a very long time. Uh, George would do five to six covers a month. Uh, he, he was doing Justice League uh, for a period at the same time he was doing Titans. He had a full belly of anything he wanted at DC Comics. He wanted to do Superman covers. He did those Green Lantern covers. He did those. But this kicks open the door for the eventual arrival of Frank Miller, which we've covered with Ronan and then Dark Knight. But Frank crosses over 83, 84, knocks on the door. Now he's over there. So you've got George Perez and you've got John Byrne. I mean, you've got George, you've got George Perez and you have Frank Miller. And these are two benchmark huge talents that the fan base only associates with Marvel Comics at that time. And now they have both arrived at DC Comics to work their magic. Well, the biggest star in the comic book universe, at, from my standpoint, I think from a sales standpoint, this could be made. He had the most impact, and we have discussed him numerous times here because of the breadth uh, of, of his influence. That This is the guy that, that took the X-Men to uh, can't-miss status, all the fanboys, myself included, slobbering over every line he put on the page. John Byrne was the guy at the top of the mountain for most of the Bronze Age. He was prolific. He didn't just sometimes do two books a month. He did two books every month. You were getting 44 pages plus cover, so 46 pages minimum out of John Byrne while he was at Marvel. If he was doing Fantastic Four, he was doing Alpha Flight. If he was doing X-Men, he was doing Marvel Team-Up, or he was doing Avengers. He just was this prolific, uh, penciling, uh, creative machine. The work always was at the highest level. You never felt like you were getting a job that John Byrne didn't completely engage in, that he phoned in. It was polished. His style, as we've covered so many times before, was so uh, legendary in that you wanted to see him draw everybody. If he drew, drew Doctor Strange in an issue of Fantastic Four, that's how you wanted Doctor Strange to look going forward. His take on Spider-Man combined like modern sensibilities, but, but felt like what if Steve Ditko was just coming on the scene with Spider-Man right then? He could merge and meld some of the best talents. His Fantastic Four run, he took so much of Kirby's power in his, in his imagination with technology and machinery and, 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 and just merged it with the John Byrne, you know, graceful commercial line work. But his imagination on Fantastic Four and Alpha Flight was really on display. This guy wanted to tell big, broad, epic stories, and he was given the canvas. Again, 46 pages. That's two full comic books. No one's done it since. No one does it today. It is just phenomenal when I look back and see that he was putting the output that he was putting out. He did Captain America. He had done The Hulk, and The Hulk was his really last major Marvel Comics assignment. He got that book in the summer of 1985, and it was, oh, it was so exciting. It was the best Hulk had been in six, seven years, which is a long time in comic books. I mean, that's, that is a long period of time, and he had transformed Hulk. He, has se he separated Bruce Banner and the Hulk into two separate entities, and, and it really imaginative science stuff. Um, he drew a big, bulky, brawny Hulk, and it was, it really felt like like John had reawakened uh, his 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 artistic uh, instincts and and his hunger on the Hulk, 
he was on Fantastic Four for a very long time. It was hard to keep it going fresh in his fourth year on the title. And Alpha Flight had, uh, he had left Alpha Flight to do the Hulk. He had been on Alpha Flight for a couple of years. Alpha Flight does not exist without John Byrne. He created it whole cloth. All those characters are his characters. He's from Canada. He introduced a Canadian super team into the X-Men. Huge impact. Alpha Flight, for the longest time, Alpha Flight number one was the number one selling book. He would tell you that in every interview. It was something like, I think, 400,000 copies. It was some insane title for like 1983 that, that Alpha Flight launched. So John Byrne is hugely impactful. Again, Alpha Flight is all of his characters. Um, Sasquatch, Puck, Marina, um, Vindicator slash Guardian, Shaman. He is tearing it up in the comic book scene. But he has been at Marvel for a a decade more, probably seven, late 74, early 75. It's now 1986. And the news comes via all the news outlets, all the fan outlets. And if you were a regular attendee of the comic book clubhouse, which was whatever comic book store that you are going to, you were aware and engaged with the fan press. There was the comics journal. There was comics interview magazine. There was amazing heroes. There was not an internet. This was not something you woke up and read on Twitter. You would have to go to the comic store and maybe there was a full page ad in Amazing Heroes that said, John Byrne is coming to DC Comics. And this was exciting because it was the right move at the right time. John Byrne had done the Avengers. He had done the Fantastic Four. Huge runs. He had done the legendary X-Men run. He had done a just legendary like eight to nine issue Captain America run that everyone still holds up as like, why didn't this go on further? It was so epic. He had done multiple Spider-Man jobs. Marvel team up, Marvel two and one. He had done again Alpha Flight. He had now done the Hulk. The only books like that came to mind that he hadn't done. He had done an entire run on Iron Fist and then done some Power Man. So the only stuff that he he really hadn't done was like well he hadn't done a run on Doctor Strange and he hadn't done Ghost Rider. But I mean you would be hard pressed to find the titles that John had not graced. Um, he didn't do a big run on Thor, but at the time that was Walt Simon's new domain. And nobody was taking that away from him. And he's not going to go do Daredevil. Again, John Byrne also very commercially canny, very smart guy. If you read his interviews, he had great commercial instincts. And he was guiding his career the best he knew to maintain the dominance that he had. Which brings him now to DC Comics and Superman. And the relaunching of Superman from the ground up. They are going to train, change fundamentally everything you have known about Superman in order to make Superman a top-selling title. Superman had not been uh, at the top of the charts, had not been a comic book that was connecting with the audience for a long time. Probably when Superman the movie came out in 1978 was the bright, shining moment for that character, and deservedly so. Most people, most people my age, teenagers of that time, kids of that time, Superman the movie by Dick Donner, Richard Donner, Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder is a epic, I, I believe is a perfect film. Yes, it has a, it, it reflects the time of the 70s. And at the time, I wasn't crazy about the way Gene Hackman was depicted as Lex Luthor. I love Lex Luthor. I, I love that he was this brilliant mind and I love the plot. But fans of the, of the comic book at the time had become accustomed to a Lex Luthor that was always in a purple and green, very distinct, uh, uh, comic book supervillain outfit with black straps across his t his chest and an X 
and a jetpack, and he had sci-fi tech guns, laser guns. He was this super scientist, uh, rogue villain, madman that wanted to destroy Superman. And then he is kind of this genius uh, kind of bumbler. I mean, in the Superman movie, but this 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 you know keen criminal you know intellect, and he challenges Christopher Reeve. But the show of Superman is Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder and the brilliant depiction of Krypton and the heart that that movie had. The the the, the Jonathan you know Kent Mon Pa Kent teaching young Clark Kent uh, what it's like to be human, his responsibilities with the powers that he has. Superman's introduction to society in, in Metropolis, his coming out as, you know, the Man of Steel, the Fortress of Solitude. Um, these are just amazing moments, and that score by John Williams, uh, just an uplifting movie. It never fails to put a smile on my face. The sequel with the villains from the Phantom Zone had all the action that you were hoping to get in the first movie. I did not know as a kid that they were basically shot as one giant movie and cut, cut up into two different, you know, parts one and parts two until I was much older when I would read these sci-fi magazines like Starlog. But I just knew that the, that the Superman movies from 1978 to 1981, the, these movies were the defining moments for the Superman character. And Superman had action comics, World's Finest, DC Comics Presents, um, his own title, Superman, Superman Family. Superman was a featured, iconic player on the DC stage. He was moving tons of copies. He was a character that excited people. And then, you know, as times change, as bands don't have their records played anymore, as movie stars can't open films, Superman kind of went flat. Uh, super teams were now the new flavor, a la the X-Men, the Avengers, the Titans. And solo superheroes, especially at DC, or taking the bat a back seat. I covered in the Dark Knight episode of Rob Observations how Batman was losing titles, that he lost Brave and the Bold, that he lost World's Finest. World's Finest was a book that co-starred Superman and Batman. Together they were World's Finest. And Brave and the Bold was a team-up book where Batman teamed up with everybody in the DC Universe. DC Comics Presents was the Superman version of that comic book where he teamed up with every character in the DC Comics Universe world's finest he's that half of that team the, the, those books are going away superman is losing titles he's featured in the justice league but he is his role is diminishing in dc comics and dick giordano who had started as an amazing illustrator amazing penciler and inker some of my favorite aquaman stories he penciled and inked he also as we've covered before dick giordano's pen quill brush were perfection from Continuity Studios with Neil Adams, and he had become the premier inker in the industry. And I can't even tell you how many covers that he would ink on DC Comics from month to month. Dick Dillon, Irv Novick, Rich Buckler, you know, as we've covered, Neil Adams, George Perez. He was the Joe Staten. I mean, I can't, I mean, Dick was the polish. He was like the final polish on the books before they went out to make sure they maintained a certain artistic integrity. And Dick is as fine an illustrator uh, as, as you can find in the comics industry. He, his work is very reminiscent of the very best of Neil Adams, except he was not the storyteller uh, or as prolific in, in what he did as Neil Adams. As a penciler, he was not prolific. As an inker, he was the premier inker for an age. And from Dick's inking studio, 
came Terry Austin, Joe Rubenstein, all these amazing inkers that entertained us, Bob Layton, uh, over the, the Bronze Age to the present day. Dick was a great mentor, tutor, but he got an executive position as uh, head executive creative at DC Comics, and he was recruiting these guys from Marvel. He would, you knew when Dick Giordano sat down to talk to you, artists kind of always are keen and respect other artists, and everyone knew the, the breadth of Dick's accomplishments. So if Dick's going to take Frank Miller out and talk to him, Frank's going to listen to what Dick has to say and probably get a couple stories in there. What was it like to ink this, you know, Neil Adams job? What was it like to ink, you know, this Dick, Dick, this Dick Dillon job? Um, Dick had the respect of everybody. Whenever he walked into the room, Dick Giordano was completely and 100% respected. He gave me my first work at DC Comics. I negotiated my contracts with him on Hawk and Dove. I was always reverent because this guy has been around and he was a, he's a gentleman. He was a gentleman. So he was beginning this recruitment process. Obviously, Marv Wolfman and George Perez had come over, Roy Thomas, Gene Colan. When Frank Miller came over, that was like, whoa, Frank, again with Ronan and then with Dark Knight. But perhaps the biggest get was John Byrne. John Byrne is coming to transform. If you're getting John Byrne, you're getting two books a month, John Byrne. John Byrne had done one job for DC Comics in the last eight years prior to this. He had done one issue of the Untold Legend of Batman. Apparently the scripts came in late and he left after the first issue. And Jim Apero finished that miniseries. But I remember going, John Byrne is, 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 is at DC Comics in 1978, 1979. Hit peak Byrne. And inked by legendary Jim Apero. It's a great Untold Legend of Batman issue one. It's a phenomenal comic. But it is the only time John Byrne worked with DC for that entire period. But I'm going to tell you, the fact that John Byrne wanted in on Superman is no secret to anybody who had been following him again on a fan level. In 1980, so the dawn of the art book, the art of book, the art of George Perez, the art of Joe Kubert, the art of John Byrne. These were arriving and they were these handsome, soft cover, kind of album sized. And I have my art of John Byrne from 1980 by published by Sal Q Productions. They published so many of these art books. And John Byrne stepped up for this. He did a bunch of illustrations specifically for this book. He let us look into, inside his portfolio. We got 100%, like just so, everything in here is new. I had never seen it for the, you know, before I saw it here. And it was an examination of the most popular artist of that time. And they tell you many times in this art of John Byrne that he is the most popular artist of his time. From 75 to 80, John Byrne became the dynamo. But on the inside front cover, you get a full colored, it's like a painting, but John Byrne claims he did this with colored markers, used them like almost watercolors at the time, at the, the dawn of this, I can use markers, this new breed of markers that they were putting out. I can use these as kind of paintbrushes. It is Superman. He is flying at you. It's a full page. I'm looking at it now. It's beautiful. It's the best illustration in the entire book. And you're like, John Byrne draws Superman? Now, this is, again, 1980. John Byrne is Fantastic Four, Avengers. He's X-Men. He is everything to the community. He is the number one best-selling um, comic book artist, author. And this book has no less than six illustrations of Superman. And they are crazy good illustrations. A couple of them are inked by Terry Austin, his artistic partner, on the X-Men. So it looks as modern and killer and commercial and as appealing as anything that he was doing in the X-Men. He's got Lex Luthor with a giant kind of tech rifle. 
He's got Clark Kent walking alongside a beautiful Lois Lane. He's got several shots of Superman flying through the air in these terrific action poses. He's got a bust of, of Superman tearing open his shirt. as Clark Kent tearing open his shirt to reveal Superman. He's got another just great pinup shot of Superman. Anybody who followed John Byrne knew that John Byrne had a thing for Superman. And I guess we should have realized it was only a matter of time. They are going to transform Superman. They are going to take that momentum left behind from the Superman movies, and they are going to transplant it into the comic books. Man of Steel. It's announced. Six issues. Reboot. DC has just finished The Crisis on Infinite Earths, a 12-issue maxi-series where they took the multiverse. You hear in pop culture now all the time, the multiverse, the multiverse. You know, um, Ultimate Spider-Man, Miles Morales, that's part of a multiverse. DC Comics had The Crisis on Infinite Earths over the CW network, you know, army of shows last fall, and it was the multiverse, the multiverse. Different dimensions, different planets, different Earths. This was comic books in the 70s and the 80s. Earth 2, Earth X, Earth Z. Earth Prime, Earth One, and Christ on Infinite Earths was a editorial directive told in the most breathtaking, brilliant, epic across, you know, the galaxy, Marvel from George Perez. The end game was to get everybody back to a much more basic one planet, one set of heroes, not three multiple Supermans, an old Superman from a World War II, you know, era planet. It, this is how things were working, but now we were focusing and we were going to get just one Superman and just one Batman and just one Wonder Woman and new continuity, but there was things that got left behind. And what was getting left behind post-crisis on Infinite Earths, moving forward with Superman, was that the history of Superman had always involved his young years as Superboy. Well, that is gone. No more Superboy. Clark Kent did not arrive in Kansas. He was not raised by the Kents to then become Superboy in his teenage years and have gazillions of issues worth of adventures. Also, it was key that Superboy was recruited by a super team from the 30th century in the 60s called the Legion of Superheroes. That legend would grow. All of that's off the table. The new rules are there was never a Superboy. Superman did not debut himself as the superhero, the icon that we know until his adulthood. It was going to now mirror the Christopher Reeve, Dick Donner, Superman the movie. Again, that movie, to guys my age, is like second only to Superman. It thrilled us. It, the, You know, the ad was, you will believe a man could fly. The commercials, Superman the movie, you will believe a man could fly. Those were state-of-the-art special effects at the time. That movie was as uh, groundbreaking and envelope-pushing as Star Wars was in its depiction of a superhero. Superheroes never look better. And I got to tell you, you know, in terms of casting, you're never going to do better than Chris Reeves. Look, I love Henry Cavill. He's the second best. Like, he is as close as you're going to get. I love him. I love Superman the movie for its kindness, its gentleness, its grace, its grandeur. I love Man of Steel with Henry Cavill for its action and its energy. And and at the end, its rage. I see Man of Steel as a Superboy movie, but that is a movie for another time. It's not called Superman. It's called Man of Steel. He's growing into the role, but I digress. John Byrne on Man of Steel is going to undertake a complete reboot as we know it, laying down the law of what Superman is going to be like moving forward. And again, John Byrne is at the peak of his powers. And by shifting to DC, he is taking all the narrative with him. Marvel's number one producer, their top selling, their best selling guy, is now going to DC. So all of the attention is on him. 
and Superman's going to benefit because all those Marvel fans, and I saw it from my clerk's view as well as my fan's view, are going to give that book a try. They, guys who bought Captain America, Thor, Avengers, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, they weren't buying Superman, but they were now. And wisely, DC got multiple bites at the apple out of this. Man of Steel is a six-issue miniseries that will give you six chapters in this get-to-know-the-new-Superman. Here's the new Superman, John Byrne, legendary John Byrne, is writing and drawing, and the amazing Dick Giordano is going to ink again, and he is going to embellish John Byrne, so it's like the best of Superman's past, because he inked so many epic Superman stories. He is going to, he inked, you know, all those great Neil Adams covers, and and, and, and just, he, he was synonymous. Jose, Jose Garcia Lopez, Rich Buckler, all these great depictions, especially off on a million covers. These guys, all these Superman covers that Dick Giordano would ink. He is now bringing his embellishment, this classic, the guy that gave basically birth Terry Austin, the guy who, who, who gave you the best inker ever in our knowledge of, of John Byrne. Terry Austin came from Dick Giordano's studio. Now the old man is going to gear up and he is going to put his pen and brush on John Byrne. So it's a great marriage of the ages, of the new and of the of the legendary. And these six issues are going to give you this new blueprint for Superman. But then it's going to launch with a Superman number one at, right after. So you're getting, you know, this, this total reboot. Now Marv Wolfman is involved in this because he's going to do Adventures of Superman, a companion book. But I'd be lying if I told you John Byrne was not the show. And in the... Um, different accounts and interviews and in Marv's history he said I knew when John Byrne came to DC he'd be the flash he'd be the show he'd be the the energy and the and the star that would get this new version of Superman off the ground so Marv Wolfman was all in and knew what John Byrne brought to the table so Man of Steel is going to launch it is going to capture the imagination of comic book fans an audience that is ripe and ready to, to, to have this new Superman. What else is new besides no Superboy? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, you haven't been around with all the Superboys that were around in the 60s and the 70s. Superboy, Superboy had his own dedicated title. He shared a title with the Legion of Superheroes. He was in backup stories. He had features in the Superman family, 100-page comics that would come out once a month. <clears throat> Superboy was a huge part of DC's history, but now they're paring it down. John Byrne loves to operate on this motif of back to basics. He likes to take things back to the main reason that they work, which is always kind of the, what he likes about it the most, which works, get, whatever gets your passion going. But he clearly loved the cold uh, view of Krypton that was depicted in, uh, in, in Superman, you know, the movie. And, and while not crystalline and chandelier looking and the, the way it was in Dick Donner's it was a uh, it was a in, in John Burns um, Man of Steel Krypton was very cold um, very almost dystopian it's Kal-El and Lara um, and, uh, and and they are and, and they are wandering through this very cold existence with robots indicating when Krypton is going to be compromised and you know John has given them this new kind of uh, uh, these robes and this new design technique that he has applied uh, in order to depict his version the the technology is trademark John Byrne with a little twist 
but we are introduced in the same way uh, that that the that the Superman the movie introduced Krypton. We are introduced in Man of Steel to um, to to Krypton, and we see the crisis that it's under. And Jor El is very concerned, and obviously sends off his son in a rocket ship that is um, headed for Earth, much the same way that you know Moses was put in a uh, a basket and floated down the river to survive the purge that Egypt was putting on the Israelites. It has always had this um, this great kind of biblical uh, uh, you know motif and echo, and of course it comes from Siegel and Schuster, who are from Jewish origin, and so it always made sense to me that they would reflect kind of this Moses story with Superman. So Superman is uh, as a baby launched to Earth. Same as always, it's the depiction of Krypton that is so visually stunning and not like anything we'd seen. There was no headband anymore on on uh, Lara and Jor-El. There were no like these kind of 1950s space suits with <clears throat> with elevated shoulder tips, and uh, they they didn't look like the 50s anymore. They looked like this weird dystopian cold um, future with this different. John Byrne robot, floating robot tech. Some of it, I gotta be honest, is reflected in Man of Steel. Some of the floating robots with just the arms and the head and the torso that, that Russell Crowe encounters are first depicted in John Byrne's Man of Steel. But shortly thereafter, he arrives on Earth. He is discovered by the Kents. And we cut to, you know, Clark Kent's uh, standout athletic career in Smallville. And uh, we learn he's obviously, he's aware that he's stronger and faster than anybody else. And we also learn that he has been uh, committing these great, brave acts where <clears throat> his parents realize that some of these things that have been happening are not happenstance. An ocean liner that is saved, a plane that is saved. Um, Clark is using his powers that he has been given under our red sun per the classic Superman origin. He's using those powers to better mankind. He's already the ultimate Boy Scout that everyone had come to know him in comic book legend and he has been guided by the good spirit and great teachings of these sweet Midwestern folks, <clears throat> you know, the Kents and uh, Jonathan and Martha. And they are raising Superman up in the way he should go. So so the, the, the first issue is a fresh kind of look at Krypton, the Kents. But we really get going with issue two and especially issue three of Man of Steel. As uh, by, by the end of the first issue, Superman has donned his Superman cape. He gets his full splash page. He's Superman. You knew it was going to be a buildup. Byrne is going to, you know, give you this kind of backstory with, with Clark and his parents and his origins on Krypton. But then we hit full throttle and he meets Lois Lane. And Lois Lane is absolutely Margot Kidder's Lois Lane. The tough, uh, no-nonsense, super whip-smart, uh, you know, uh, female... Uh, career-oriented, doesn't-need-a-man uh, ball buster that is Lois Lane. And we see how resourceful she is in getting her stories, and we see how uh, just uh, on the scene she is in Metropolis and how Perry White can barely keep up with her. But Superman presents a very different challenge for her. And the, the thing with Lois, and as smart and as capable as she is, John has her get scooped at the end of the story by another ace reporter named Clark Kent. And that is a great, fun, second-issue reveal of Lois Lane. 
you've got his origin in issue one, you've got the Lois Lane establishment, and John draws a great Lois Lane. Let's, let's be honest, Lois had never looked better. It's, uh, again, part of John's appeal was his visuals, and John was looking through Glamour magazine, Vogue magazine, Cosmopolitan magazine, getting the best fashion. He is literally, every scene that she is in, she is in some rip-from-the-headlines fashion uh, skirt, blouse, top, jumper. Uh, he made sure that Lois looked like a million bucks, depicted in a way that she hadn't been in the years uh, previous by Kurt Swan or Garcia Lopez. John really wanted, especially with the haircut, he would always, during his run, go out of his way to show you that like uh, the celebrities or the news people that we see on the TV still to this day, you know, a couple of the reporters uh, that I follow on Good Morning America, The Today Show, they have fashion accounts showing you what they wear every day. So this has stayed in focus. This is what was happening with Lois Lane in 1986 under John Byrne's guidance. So he really establishes her as a huge player, as a huge influence that is going to be uh, a big uh, point of impact in his run. And really, again, picking up on Margot Kidder's just dynamite portrayal of Lois Lane. She was as equally as responsible. That gravelly voice, that husky voice of hers, that tough demeanor. She's super smart. She's always looking to out, out, out class and outwit whoever is competing with her on a story. This is that Lois. She's great. Issue three is where <clears throat> you get the big, wow, Batman. Batman is issue three of Man of Steel. Metropolis meets Gotham. It is really terrific. John was, he has said in interviews, he was reluctant to really pick up on this new animosity that Frank Miller had established in Dark Knight that we've covered where Clark and Bruce are competitors. They're not, they're not friends. They're on different ends. Bruce operates in the darkness. You know, Clark is, is truth, justice, and the American way. And John had said, I grew up, these guys were friends. Now Frank has pitted them against each other, and, and, it, and it's basically kind of company policy. And I also think John knew that Frank's view was ridiculously popular, and he wasn't going to go against it. So what he does is he gives us a fantastic opening chapter. We meet Batman enforcing uh, his vigilante justice in Gotham, and he is met by Superman, who has become aware of this vigilante and wants to kind of discuss the terms of his operation. And to Superman's shock, Batman tells him, if you make a move towards me, it will de detonate a thermal device and blow up and kill innocent lives in Gotham City. And like he just boldly rolls to Superman and he tells him, you don't think I know about you? You learn. Batman's no, you know, he, he hasn't been asleep at the wheel. He is aware of this new, you know, superhero with all these amazing powers that is just down the road in Metropolis. So he immediately anticipates that there will have a confrontation so he creates a scenario upon which there's a sensor in my belt if you make a move towards me it will detonate and kill someone in the city an innocent life will be will be lost and superman says you're a monster and batman says these are the rules of engagement how else am i supposed to control you and it's just this great exchange where superman is completely unnerved by batman's approach but batman stands his ground because he's like you can lift entire, you know, buildings and will later, you know, uh, lift an ocean liner in, in, in an up upcoming issue. We've seen the, how ridiculously powerful Superman is. So Batman, a mortal, you know, the, the, the Dark Knight detective, 
has done his homework and has kind of kept Superman at bay. They're going to investigate the doings of this new villain named Magpie in Gotham City. And that's, you know, that's all well and good. The issue is fine. The action is, is, is good. But the stuff we really love is the contrast between the two guys in this new post-crisis on Infinite Earths uh, established relationship that they are at opposite ends and are not terribly friendly. And at the end of the story, after wrapping up the uh, the villain and taking care of Magpie's threat, which again, it's just, it's serviceable in that it got these guys together and it establishes their, 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 their rapport. Batman reveals that he can now tell Superman that the thermal device and the person that was going to die was attached to him. That he took the risk, knowing that Superman was a kind of a Boy Scout, that he, once the rules were laid out, that Superman would not infringe upon that. And so Batman said, I put the debt, the, detonator on myself i knew probably with your ability to read you know pulses and heartbeats that you would you would be able to tell if i was bluffing or lying to you so i had to be telling the truth when i told you that i have a sensor that if you make a move towards me and you come at me aggressively will blow up in gotham city and destroy the innocent life the only thing i didn't tell you was the innocent life is mine and i really felt like john byrne just scored big time i love this interaction there are people that hate that they were at odds in this new uh chemistry between them existed but i was all in because of dark knight i liked this different approach that these were not chummy guys that these were they had kind of an adversarial aspect to them superman believes that bruce is uh is more honorable than originally he believed when the uh the, the, this 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 threat of detonation was first introduced to him as a means to kind of keeping him at bay but he realizes you know hey you're you're not as bad as i thought you were you put your own life at risk in order to kind of, you know, contain me. I don't like it, but you're not the, the monster that I thought you were. And, and in fact, realizes that there is a lot of depth to Bruce and a lot of uh, complications to Mr. Batman. And as he flies away, Batman says, he's a good guy. He's an admirable guy. He's, he's, he, he really respects him, uh, wishes that they had existed and met under different circumstances. But Batman's going to keep an eye on Superman. And likewise. And I really felt... Like, this really was ramping up the excitement for everything that was John Byrne was going to do with Superman going forward. The next three issues are Lex Luthor, which is a huge, huge issue. And this is the next big No Superboy. And kind of this new parameters with Batman. Again, these differences in, in, in Superman going forward. So all of the Superboy, you know, history is gone. Which is a bigger deal than you can even possibly imagine for the time. <clears throat> then you have kind of this new dynamic with Lois, this new dynamic with, uh, with with Batman, but then Lex Luthor. This is what's going to set up everything. Lex Luthor, traditionally, again, the super scientist with the ray guns. And then previously, right a couple of years earlier, because of superpowers and the toys, they had jacked Luthor up into this giant exoskeleton suit. So he it was still purple and green, but he was no longer in his purple and green jumpsuit with a rocket pack and his space guns. He now had a giant, like, like armor, like an Iron Man villain. I mean, this giant collar that raised above in the back and these giant, you know, mechanized arms and legs thick. I mean, when he moved and he, um, uh, uh, just his presence, he was this giant, almost cyborg-looking threat. That's gone. Lex Luthor is now in a button-down suit and he is a kingpin-type threat. When we are introduced to him in issue four of Man of Steel, 
Lois has been sent this knockout designer gown to attend this Luther LexCore LexCore uh, event on a yacht, and Clark is going to accompany her. And she, it's great. She wanders around Clark's um, apartment. She Clark is getting ready. I think this is the issue we learn how John Byrne has him shave, which is he uses his heat vision to reflect off the mirror to shave his hair because John was obsessed with wouldn't his hair be like locks of steel and and how would he cut it it would break against scissors and he did show that so now we see that superman uh, shaves via his heat vision reflected in the mirror it's great again kudos to john Byrne. he had some really good stuff in his hip pocket that he had kept in check again given how much he loved superman based on that art book in 1980 and how much he's been building up to depicting superman it did not disappoint but he she wanders off in his apartment while he's tidying up and she's lifting weights she's got a dumbbell and it's a great scene where he's like man lois you cannot she is full of surprises and 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 they get together and they go to this lexcore function on this giant mega yacht it's like it's like an it's like an ocean freighter it's so big and we meet lex luthor who is a billionaire businessman who will wreck you with his millions of dollars and manipulate you via the stock market he is every kind of uh uh, uh kingpin type uh, threat that Frank Miller had used to transform the kingpin from just kind of a look I'm a crime boss into I'm a giant you know warlord of crime over in Daredevil and now he John is taking that motif applying it to Lex Luthor who is investing in millions and millions of genetic research and science and technology but he wears a suit he operates out of his penthouse and he destroys people's lives with his investments very much ahead of its time in that we would see almost every bad guy in the 90s operate under this motif as well. So they are on Lex's yacht. He is clearly there to flirt with Lois and size up what she knows about Superman. Then suddenly, after offending Lois, and she takes off the designer gown, throws it back at Lex, grabs Clark's jacket, and says, let's get out of here. I won't be manipulated by this guy, I, you know, because he wants to whine and dine me, and I'm not interested. So you see Lois and, and, and Lex are, are at odds, and, and, and she spurs his romantic advances, which, you know, are great plants for how Lex will plot in the future his vengeance against Superman, because Lois has the hots for Superman, and he's been spurned. And at this point, John hasn't um, given him a bald head. He has like the tufts of hair. And uh, although I think Lois says, you look like Elmer Fudd, complete insults his appearance. He's kind of <clears throat> dumpy, more squatty. Again, the Luther who had become the villain in the in the green and purple spacesuit had a fit physique. You know, he was just bald. And now he's, again, even kingpin in, in, in some appearance of being more girthy and uh, heavier set. And he and his LexCore ocean liner are attacked by terrorists. Of course, Superman takes action. And this is one of those, I hired the terrorists to jack the ship to see if I could draw Superman out and put him through his motions. And of course, that, that's exactly how this plot plays out. Superman squelches it. The mayor of Metropolis ends up deputizing Superman to arrest Lex Luthor because he has committed criminal acts, reckless endangerment. So... Lex is taken away. He's booked, but not before he screams, you can't do this to me. I'm the most powerful man in Metropolis. He may have said, I'm the most powerful man in the world. And the mayor 
cuts to a shot of the mayor with Superman behind him. And he goes, no, you're not. Not anymore. So another great, you know, power shift that Lex is being eclipsed by this mysterious man of steel. Lex makes bail, obviously gets himself out. He visits uh, Clark Kent and Superman. Uh, he, he has an exchange with Superman on the steps and tells him, I'm going to destroy you. I will not stop until I have destroyed your life. You have humiliated me on the public, you know, on the public page with uh, exposing me and my threat and getting me arrested. And uh, basically, you know, he knows he'll he'll do some PR and come out of it, but he's never met a threat like this. And he tells him, I'll use everything at my disposal to destroy you. And so we've established these guys can't stand each other. Lex is threatened by Superman's power, his dominance. The next issue is a great nod to the giant cyborg suit as we open with Superman holding it. But you see it from the back and he's like, the gig is up, Luthor. So you think Superman is speaking to the man that he's holding and it is exactly from the back, the exact super cyborg, superpowers toy era armor that Lex Luthor had graduated to prior to Man of Steel where now he's the kingpin. But we, page two and three, reveals that he is holding up a robot kind of guardian and addressing Luther who's behind his big desk. And the, this entire issue is a reboot of Bizarro as, as, as Bizarro is a stray clone from the material that Luthor has pilfered and taken from Superman in order to clone him. Why not clone him to beat him, right? He guys pissed you off. He's humiliated you. He's the new big dog in town. So this is an entire Bizarro arrow because obviously Bizarro issue and it it is a glitchy bizarro that faces off against superman and uh not my favorite issue the next issue is the long lost message from jor-el kind of breaking down his why he sent him to earth and establishing what he expects of his son and kind of the perils of the life that he has chosen for himself on earth and it has a great scene with pa kent confronting the hologram of of his Kryptonian father, so you've got his earthly father, you've got his... It, it, it was nothing short of phenomenal. This entire six-issue miniseries was number one. It rocked the charts. People showed up for it. It was the another huge benchmark in DC's amazing 1986. Dark Knight, Watchmen, Man of Steel, post-crisis, they roared into this new era. And John Byrne at the helm also did action comics. They relaunched action comics, and action comics became the team-up book. Superman, Green Lantern. Superman, Aquaman. Superman, the Titans. John Byrne was giving you his 44 pages a month, just like he did at Marvel, with out in front with the Superman motif, the Superman brand, building it up, making it the biggest baddest, boldest book DC was publishing at the time. It electrified the audience. Uh, the only thing is it, it, it had about a two to two and a half year lifespan. It was in the moment, this tremendous, tremendous happening. It had tremendous impact, but it did not maintain the longevity. And when John Byrne leaves Superman two and a half years later, Superman is kind of back where he started. At, as as a character that is not really terribly interesting to today's audience, something that Warner Brothers has said in the press, we need to make Superman relevant. You guys, tell great stories. And when John Byrne had two years worth of great stories, Superman was just electric, it was complex, it was engaging, and people ate it up. 
but John clearly, and sometimes I know myself as a creator, I only have a year's worth of stories, two years worth of stories. And, and then you have to hand the baton off and hope the guy after you can carry it. The, the new peak of Superman would come in 92 and we'll get there when DC made the very controversial, but very successful move to kill him. Killing characters always grabs eyeballs. But this was about the rebirth of a brand, rebirth of a character. Superman was in fine form. John Byrne flexed. He gave his very best. The art on Man of Steel is everything I have described, everything you could hope for. Dick Giordano, paired with John Byrne, is just a brilliant, beautiful um, combo. The art is gorgeous. The depictions of Batman you suddenly now were engaged in. Hey, what am I going to do? How am I going to uh, see John Byrne draw all these DC characters? When's John Byrne going to draw Dr. Fate? When John, is John Byrne going to draw the Hour Man? When is John Byrne going to draw the Challenger of the Unknown? John was at his artistic peak. You were still completely engaged. But I'm going to tell you that John Byrne, in his time, in Marvel, at Marvel, at DC, I'll tell you the guy he was. And this is kind of the final view. John Byrne is the, was the J.J. Abrams of comics. What J.J. Abrams did with Star Trek, what J.J. Abrams did with Mission Impossible, and what J.J. Abrams was called to do with Star Wars. He was always called to put this new spin, put these fresh uh, ideas into an existing franchise that had been somewhat dormant. And John had done that at Fantastic Four, re rejuvenated the book and put it on X-Men level. He did it with Hulk, he did it with Captain America, and now he is doing it with Superman. Because he, the same way J.J. came in, he made the Enterprise, everyone younger. He, he showed you Captain Kirk's first you know, mission, introduced Spock, a new twist on the Vulcans. All of the things that John Byrne applied on Star Trek, he applied, uh, that J.J. Abrams applied on Star Trek, John Byrne was doing on Superman. He was that guy you called to give the fresh reboot. And again, when, when J.J. was called in on Mission Impossible, it was to freshen up the franchise, give it kind of a new, an, a, 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 a new spin. He then obviously did, in my opinion, I love what he did in 2009's Star Trek. All, all of the moves I loved. I, lo I thought the fresh cast, the fresh faces, the going younger. That's what John Byrne did to Superman. That's what John Byrne was called to do. When he got that call and he stepped to the plate, stepped up to the plate, he was going to give you his reboot, his new vision. He was going to borrow from the old, uh, take take some fresh stuff that he liked over here, combine them to make this new palette. Man of Steel was one of the biggest events that hit comics in 1986, and it had a giant echo. Think about all the times that uh, a new bunch of comics are going to arrive and they peter out. I'll give you a case in point. Also in 1986, Marvel did a thing called the New Universe. They advertised it, a bunch of new titles, New Universe, not the Marvel Universe, the New Universe. Merc, Starbrand, Kickers Inc., all these new titles, and it flopped spectacularly. They spent a ton of money advertising it. They spent a ton of money marketing, getting the word out. Um, they put some decent teams on it. They didn't commit completely creatively to it, and it tanked. I was at the comic store. People checked them out and left them behind. They didn't want anything to do with it. This was a brand new line from Marvel. So sometimes the best plans, the most money, can go unfulfilled. John Byrne's Superman could have been a complete faceplant. It could have been six issues and I don't want any part of this. This is a failure. That is the complete opposite of what happened. People were engaged and they were into Superman for the better part 
of the next three years. Superman became the talk of the town, the focus of DC, these new dynamics with him and Batman, and John got to establish how he viewed the Green Lantern Corps, how he viewed the Justice League, how he viewed Wonder Woman. They had a budding romance. They had never had a romance prior to this, but they, you know, the toughest female on the block, the most accomplished, is naturally attracted to the most accomplished male. This worked. This romance between Superman and Batman that John Byrne would, would introduce late, down the line was completely new territory. Um, and it was exciting and it was logical and it made sense and it looked great. But Man of Steel and then the subsequent Superman launch would take Superman on an extremely commercial path, give a great blueprint. While things died down, they very much hewed to everything that John did up until 2003 where they started shaking what he did a little with an all-new miniseries by Mark Waid. But for the continuity to last and to be that steadfast for that period of time from 86 to 2003, John did his homework. He brought his very best to the page. It is absolutely worth checking out. The back issues are in your comic store. They are available on Comixology. John himself had spoken of how Superman was the first comic book character, superhero that he encountered. He encountered him on television, the George Reeves black and white serials. I, When I was growing up, uh, they were kind of fading. Uh, they were on on the weekends. I saw them, but it wasn't until the Christopher Reeve just ignited. And very much his love of Superman, whether it was George Reeves or the Christopher Reeves movie, he supplanted that and put that into Man of Steel. He gave it his very best. He strutted. He moved the needle. Man of Steel slash Superman is an absolute delight. You should check it out. It, it. I am so thankful that he crossed the street when he did. He needed it. It was the rejuvenation his career was begging for because, as I said, he had been at Marvel for the better part of 11, 12 years. He had done almost everything under the sun. I would say he was getting bored. DC was a challenge to him. It reignited him. You could see it on the page. His ideas, his approach to Lex, his approach to Batman, to Superman, to Lois Lane. Later on, Metallo, the Toy Man, uh, Parasite. John would not look back. He would grab all the rogues galleries, put as much twist on as much of the Superman lore and legend as he possibly could. But it was great. It was great. Superman was exciting again for the first time in who knows how long. Did Do I think there's a sprinkle of Frank in there with the, the way Batman was treated? Absolutely. And John did it brilliantly. That Man of Steel issue 3 is a, is a fun comic. I revisited them all. Obviously, before I got on this podcast to talk with you about this giant event, John Byrne crossing the street on the back of the Man of Steel trade paperback. It says Marvel's, you know, Marvel's John Byrne. You know, basically the biggest asset at Marvel Comics, it says, is recruited by DC Comics to restore Superman. I mean, that's on the back of the trade paperback. I mean, it's it's they knew what they were doing. They got the biggest comic book star. And, and I am comparing him creatively to a J.J. Abrams, but box office, he's Will Smith at his peak, Tom Cruise at his peak. You know, he's he's someone that the fans followed whatever he did, and he brought Marvel readers to Superman. And there was a... Someday we'll do a whole episode on Marvel zombies and how they literally would not read anything but Marvel comics, no interest in anything else. That, that, that term existed because Marvel coined it, but they realized that there were people that only read Marvel books. But John crossing the street, the biggest asset in the in the in the creative uh you know toolbox at Marvel, him crossing to DC, created that pull, people came over, and maybe they discovered 
all of DC's offerings for the first time. It was a move well worth making, and what would cap off this great period in 1988 was Superman's 50th birthday. That's when he turned 50, 1988. John Byrne does the cover to Time Magazine, and I'm going to tell you, that was phenomenal. John Byrne, Superman opening his chest, Clark Kent opening his chest to expose himself as Superman in this killer Time Magazine cover. Google it, you'll see it. Superman turns 50, and, and, and so by John Byrne crossing from Marvel to DC to relaunch Superman, becoming the face of Superman, the voice of Superman, the guiding creative force behind Superman in this total reboot, gets him the cover of Time Magazine. Time Magazine was the premier magazine of the time. It was the biggest, most important. It was everywhere. Superman's on Time Magazine. I know John Byrne did a lot of media for this. I wasn't able to find any of it uh, prior to this, but in my mind, I remember him being on TV selling me not only Superman's 50th, but promoting Superman because it was that big of a deal. They really went out of their way to let you know that they were giving you a brand new Superman for a brand new age. They also powered him down. He couldn't move planets anymore, but he was still ridiculously the most powerful character in the DC canon. And the way guys like Batman reacted to him with that anticipation that, yeah, you're going to hunt me down. I'm going to be ready for you. Made it all the more exciting. The new Lex Luthor was the clever mind with the finances and the influence to torment Superman and to be not the physical threat, but the clever, intellectual, ever-present threat that Superman needed and John Byrne displayed it and made it work in the best possible way. Check it out. John Byrne crosses the street, does Superman, Man of Steel, rocks 1986. What a great year for DC. They definitely took the momentum. They became the talk of the town on the back of Frank Miller, John Byrne, George Perez, DC was the place to be. They had everyone's focus, and it was a great time in comics. It was fresh. It was also, I won't do a podcast you know, devoted to it, but at that time, because Marvel was weakened and the talent was leaving, Marvel Comics, that is my least interesting period. Probably 1985 to 1988 is my least interesting period of Marvel Comics. As I've covered many times, the, the talent was tired. They were looking for new outlets. They were going other places, independent companies, DC Comics. This is a byproduct of all that I have discussed with you and the way that talent shifts. And John Byrne was a canny operator. He knew exactly what he was doing, going over and relaunching Superman and taking all the attention and becoming the most important guy in comics to restore what is arguably the most important superhero, the most recognizable, certainly at the time. Man of Steel, Superman, all the John Byrne issues, check them out. They're fantastic. Thank you for taking this walk with me on our observations as we do regularly we are always here for you twice a week you can find me on social media at robert liefeld on twitter at robert liefeld i didn't get the rob liefeld that's being squatted at robert liefeld blue check that's really me instagram rob liefeld i got it rob liefeld on instagram blue check that's really me hang out with me interact with me talk to me on facebook on social media I'm all over the place. I love hearing from you guys. This was a blast. Those Superman comics are fantastic. It absolutely put Superman in a new position of success. And we will be back again, as we are every time, to continue these observations with you, walking down the comic book history, and we are inching toward the 90s. You can smell them. They're almost here, people. So stay with me. Um, spread the word. Subscribe. Thank you for your support. Take care of yourself. Stay out of trouble. This is Rob saying goodbye.